You're listening to Don't Waste Water. People's homes are often their largest investments. Most people don't think anything will ever happen to them. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. We come in when it's disaster survivors' worst day. It's a bad day because they've lost their house, they've lost their community, they've lost their cars, whatever it is. And so, what we're trying to do, our metric is how can we reduce disaster suffering? I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm glad to welcome Nick Souffro as my guest. Uptake of flood insurance policies in the United States, populations about 330 million people. We have about 9 million policies in place. So it's not a tremendous amount of uptake. Nick is Deputy Assistant Administrator at the Federal Insurance and Mitigation Administration. Ben Franklin said a stitch in time saves nine or an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. The Federal Insurance and Mitigation Administration, or FEMA, manages the National Flood Insurance Program, or NFIP, and a range of programs designed to mitigate against future losses from all hazards, including floods, earthquakes, tornadoes, and other natural disasters. If you recall my conversation with John Robinson some weeks ago, we discussed how we often feel the impact of climate change through water. And yes, water scarcity will be a major challenge in the coming decades. It already is a challenge, but the other end of the spectrum probably doesn't get all the attention it deserves. Too little water is a problem, but too much water is probably even more of a risk. As I'm recording this introduction in early October 2022, the world still has the very pregnant images of one-third of Pakistan being underwater. And Hurricane Yan still threatens Florida and many other places in the region. But as the European example showed, we humans have a strong capacity to forget about those crises and be surprised again when they return. Summer 2021 was all about floods. Summer 2022 was all about water scarcity. And we sometimes get lost. But what can we do about it? Actually, quite a lot. Pre-disaster mitigation is a vast toolbox with many options to reduce the impact of events we can't avoid or prevent from happening. Yet, pre-disaster mitigation is also often doomed. We wish we would have done more when it's too late. So, the message of administrations like the one Nick represents today is one to be heard, especially when there's no flood on the horizon and we're all deeply convinced it will never happen to us. I'll leave the floor to Nick to quickly take us through the topic in just a second. The time for me to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help me tremendously by sharing that episode around you. Please tell your friends, colleagues or LinkedIn network what they should take home from the nuggets Nick shares today. And if you don't like what you hear, please reach out to me and tell me what I should be doing differently or better. Come on, do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. What is it that we have to rethink about water? We need to get away from our communities and silos and think across different organizations and different businesses. Many conferences, many conversations are focused on dams, 
or they're focused on flood, or they're focused on carbon. And we need to look at opportunities to bring together people on a cross-functional basis so that we have investors, startup companies, artificial intelligence companies, all talking about a common problem and coming up with solutions to some of those problems. Your area of expertise has a lot to do with floods, right? That's correct. So in the US, what is the size of a project you'd be following for floods? mitigation or protection? Is it a watershed? Is it a state? Is it the country? It's the country. country. So I work for the Federal Insurance and Mitigation Administration, and we administer the federal insurance program. And so if you think about the United States and you think of any place it rains, it can flood. And you think of people's homes are often their largest investments. Many people don't buy flood insurance because it's not part of home insurance and it's expensive and people don't want to buy it. It is the biggest risk to many people. Uh, now we're seeing wildfires also are big risks, but flood is a big deal. And if you think about the United States and all of our territories and Alaska and Hawaii, we have about three million miles of waterways, coastal, river, lakefront. We are going to map all of those coastal and riverine areas. We currently map about a million miles Uh, and those are really focused on densely populated areas. And what we're trying to do is trying to give people an idea of where there's risk and where there's risk to them building. We identify the risk and then uh, we work with the states and we work with the localities because in the United States, everything is locally implemented, state managed and federally supported. So okay. we provide them with the risk information, and then the localities determine where they want to establish new homes in the floodplain. And so we're providing information to them so they can make informed decisions. What's the acceptance of flood risk? Let me give you a bit background to, to that broad question, which is I was discussing with the city of Glasgow when they were preparing for the COP26, and the city of Glasgow has a special kick in flood management that do everything with nature-based solutions. Mm -hmm. And their policy is to say, we want to mitigate the risk, so to limit the impact, but we cannot prevent floods. That would be something totally different. If you want to prevent floods, you build huge walls across the river and you pray for those walls to hold. And a big portion of what they had to do is to convince people that the risk will exist and that you invest a lot in, in mitigating it, but you will still have every second year some water in your basement. So what is the approach you have, generally speaking, in the U.S. when it comes to this acceptance of risk, mitigation of risk? First of all, most people don't think anything will ever happen to them. Yeah. And they think, not, I'm never going to get flooded out. And they're always amazed when there's an event that happens. We have some information. So if you have an inch of water in your house, it equates to X number of dollars of damage. We can't build seawalls to protect every community in the nation. It's too expensive, and if you build a wall to protect Hoboken, New Jersey, the water is going to go to Manhattan. Yeah. It goes someplace. We recommend building codes. We work with consensus-based voluntary building codes, and we try and get people to elevate their homes. And we work with, in the United States, we have a very decentralized process, just like our voting or even our responses to COVID and masking or not masking. Everything is done at the local level. So we can provide information to communities and we can encourage them in certain directions, but we really have very little mandate. The only mandate that we have for you as an individual homeowner to buy flood insurance is if you have a federally backed mortgage 
and your home sits in what's called a special flood hazard area. So uptake of flood insurance policies in the United States, population's about 330 million people. We have about 9 million policies in place. So it's not a tremendous amount of uptake. And part of that is because traditionally it's been expensive. And traditionally, we, we had a system that was developed in the 1960s, 1968. And it was really, it looked at, at areas. So if your house was in an area, you had a certain rate based on the value of your house, etc. But it was basically on the rating within that zone. With technology, and what's great to hear about some of the technology providers is we're able to get a lot more granular. And so this year, in April 1st, we introduced a new program called the Risk Rating 2.0, which went down to the property level. And so we assess risk. It's a risk-adjusted premium, and it's based on where your home sits, how far from the river or the coastline, the age of the home, and other characteristics. So you're paying something based on the risk that you have, and we're hoping there were some people whose rates went up, and there were some people whose rates went down, and we're hoping that by having a risk-adjusted premium, that we would actually get people to buy more insurance policies. Your key performance in the indicator is to see those 9 million people which have flood insurance, that number go up? Is it what you're looking at and to, to get more people on board? Yeah, so in 2016, 2017, my organization set a couple of goals which we called moonshots. And one was to double the amount of insurance policies in place. And we're talking just about flood insurance. We're not talking about earthquake insurance or other types of perils. And then we also set a goal of mitigation, quadrupling the amount of mitigation investments. And traditionally, FEMA gets funding from Congress after there are large events. And traditionally, uh, there was very little done before a, an event, mm -hmm. so what's called pre-disaster mitigation. And if you think back to one of our founding fathers, Ben Franklin said, a stitch in time saves nine, or an ounce of prevention is more than worth more than a pound of cure. So trying to identify where there are risks, which are known, and trying to prepare and build in resilience community and nation and national resilience makes a lot of sense. But we didn't get a lot of money. And the amount of money uh, varied by year and what Congress wanted to give us. So one year we could get a couple of hundred million dollars for pre-disaster mitigation efforts. And the next year we could get in the tens of millions of dollars. It was not a, a, a known amount. Mm -hmm. And in 2018, there was a piece of uh, a law that was enacted called the Disaster Response Recovery Act. And DRRA said that if you have money coming out of the Disaster Relief Fund, the DRF, and let's say you had $100 million that came out of the DRF in a given year, the following year, 6% of that had to be set and allocated to pre-disaster mitigation. And so we saw a tremendous uptake in the amount of monies that were available to try and reduce the risk so we could reduce disaster suffering. If you think about all the disasters, the billion-dollar disasters we've had over the last couple of years, including floods and hurricanes, and you think about COVID, the dollars that have been spent over the last two or three years have been tremendous, and we're able to take that and try and prepare the nation to be more resilient by doing pre-disaster mitigation. So this pre-disaster mitigation, what is the typical size of a project? Is it like really distributed and very local, or do you take one portion of the country and say, hey, we're going to work on that? So a lot of our programs are grant programs. 
and their competitive grant programs. Okay. So we set out the criteria. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to have a mitigation plan in place for your community and consistent with the belief that everything is locally implemented, state managed, and federally supported. We put out notices of funding opportunities or NOFOs and say we have this money available and communities apply for the programs. The states then say, let me help you put together your package, and then they apply for them and their competitive processes. Traditionally, we've had a lot more demand for funding than we actually have funding available. But under the current administration, we've seen some tremendously uh, large increases in the amount of dollars we have for pre-disaster mitigation and other mitigation programs. I guess you are in the front lines of the consequences of climate change, more intensive events. The second is also that all your technologies and prevention and mitigation and, and all the models you might have might tend more and more to become wrong just because the stats which you can feed them with are from a time before this climate change. How wrong am I with these two assertions? You're not wrong. Uh, little clarification. So we have a part of our organization that goes out and responds after there's a disaster. We have people, and traditionally people think of FEMA wearing FEMA windbreakers and going and getting disaster assistance information from survivors and taking people off roof of rooftops when mm -hmm. they're being flooded. That's a portion of our organization that's the response and recovery, really response. My organization is very much Um, planning and prevention and mitigation and providing risk information so people can make informed decisions. As such, we work with the private sector. We work with a number of partners, not-for-profits, other advocacy groups. And so we use the best information possible. So a lot of organizations that were here today um, talking about catastrophic risk modeling, we use the models. The information is not wrong. What we see is that a lot of the information is based on historical information. And the CAT modeling tries to project different scenarios of what may happen in the future. And as we've all seen, changes to the climate are happening faster and faster, becoming more intense. And so it's, it's not wrong, but having said that, we're seeing things happen very quickly. And so that's what we're adapting to. Okay, so if you're listening to that right now, it's not me trying to be dramatic. It's the other Joe from Barbara, which is played uh, in the room, but it serves your, your purpose. So it's, yes. it, it makes some sense. To round off this, this deep dive, what is the single metric you're looking at, which tells you if you succeed in your endeavor in the next five or 10 years? Well, since we don't have control over natural disasters, we can plan for them if we know there's a known disaster So, for example, a hurricane coming up, we know we can track its forecast over time, so we have some notice. We call those notice events. We can't really do that with no notice events, so an earthquake, um, sometimes a wildfire, we can't really plan. But our overall metric is really trying to reduce disaster suffering. We come in when it's a disaster survivor's worst day. It's, it's a bad day because they've lost their house, they've lost their community, they've lost their cars, whatever it is. And so what we're trying to do, our metric is how can we reduce disaster suffering so that the impacts of these natural events, whether they're man-made caused or naturally caused, they're reduced. To conclude these interviews, I have a set of rapid-fire questions. So short questions, aiming for short answers, but I'm not cutting the microphone. My first one is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? So I've been working on extreme heat. And extreme heat 
is a silent killer. It kills more people on average across the United States than a lot of other perils, hurricanes, earthquakes, wildfires. And there's a lot that we can do with our federal partners. So NOAA, uh, Human Health Services, EPA, there's a lot that we can do to prepare people for extreme heat. And as you've seen in the United States this summer, as we've seen in Europe, there is a lot of extreme heat going around. And so the ability to actually have an impact made it very exciting. What is the trends to watch out for in the water sector? Continued innovation. There's a lot going on. Our data is good, but there's opportunities to improve it, to tailor it to individual situations. And so innovation, innovation, innovation. And last question, what is the single thing you're doing in your job today that you won't be doing in 10 years? We're building up a team to address dam risk, so the risk of failures from dams. We're doing that because we got a lot of funding under the infrastructure bill and a small program that nobody paid attention to and our dams, we have 91,000 dams across the United States and the American Association of Civil Engineers rated the infrastructure at a D plus, which is not a good score to get, not a good rating. We're now up to a C, and part of it is looking at dams, working with states, working with tribes, working with rural utility, rural communities and utilities, and looking at dams. And so hopefully in 10 years from now, we'll be talking about a B plus, a B, you know, an A minus, and we'll have identified and started to work on fixing some of the nation's infrastructure, especially dams, because that's one of the programs that we manage, and there's a lot of risk there, and we like to avoid having any serious consequences of a dam failure. Well, fascinating field. Thanks a lot for having been my, my, my guide in that short dive. I'll let you enjoy the rest of the, the conference and probably the cocktail if I if I judge by the, the ambience. So thanks a lot. Thank you very much. <laughs> This is it for another episode of the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'd like to hand out a special thanks to Science Water for enabling it. And if you enjoyed it, make sure to give it a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from. I don't know if I deserve five stars, but my guest surely does. Do it now, tell it to your friends, and I'll be back very soon with the next interview.